Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. So I'm here with my good buddy, Joseph Wang, and we are going to go into a deep dive with these bailouts, for heaven's sakes, with the banksters and the depositors and find out if you, the taxpayer, are going to be on the hook, first and foremost. And then second, what type of moral hazard does this put into the system that could make it even more fragile moving forward and could incentivize the banksters to take even more risk than Silicon Valley Bank was taking with not just the asset, but the liability side of their balance sheet. So Joseph, welcome to the show. And I heard you on um, Forward Guidance with yes. Jack. And I think the gentleman's name is Steven and he worked at the treasury. Yeah, yeah, Steve. Steve is a really sharp guy. He worked on the treasury and now he manages the macro fund. Absolutely. And I was actually listening to that in the gym this morning. It was fantastic. Uh, but can you kind of go over what you guys were discussing? Because I think Jack's first question, which I think was totally appropriate, is Janet Yellen is coming out and saying, well, these bailouts are going to have absolutely nothing to do with the taxpayer. And by the way, don't even call them a bailout. And I think that both you and Steve were on the same page saying, no, th this is a bailout. <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely, absolutely a bailout. bailout. Absolutely. So yeah, can you describe them in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so two bailouts happened actually. So I'll describe the one. So the first bailout was the depositors in Silicon Valley Bank. And the second bailout was the biggest bailout to the commercial banks since the great financial crises. It was tremendous and unprecedented. So I'll talk about the first one first. In the US, if you put money in a bank, you have your money is protected up to $250,000. That is the FDIC insurance limit. The point of this is that if you are mom and pop, if you're retail, you know, if you're a regular person and you put money in a bank, the government wants you to feel that it's protected. It's to protect the little guy. But if you are a rich person or a big corporation, you don't really benefit from that because you have, you know, millions or billions of dollars. So if you are a big company or a big corporation and you manage money, you know that you really can't put too much money in a bank because there's bank credit risk. So if you are a competent and responsible cash manager, what you would do is you would put some money in a bank, some money in this bank, you would put up money in money market funds, or you can enter something called a sweep arrangement with a bank where at the end of the day, and anything that's above $250,000 gets swept into a money market fund or some other cash management account. So, that, so that's so the, in that case, Joseph, those, uh, those, that, that cash would be a liability of the money market fund? Yes. So that in that in a sweep account, for example, well, there's a there's a lot of ways you can do this. A bank can sweep it into money into another bank, for example. Uh, that way, you know, if you have another account in another bank, then you can get 250 plus 250,000 and so forth. There, this is a common problem. There's a whole suite of tools in the industry devoted to solving it. Not right. a big problem. Now, so if you are a sophisticated cash manager or a big corporation, you leave a whole bunch of money in a bank and it goes bust, that's really on you. You should have known better. Everyone else knows. If you look through the past, let's say 20 years, we've had 500 banks fail. So banks fail pretty much commonly. Most of the time, they're not as big as Silicon Valley Bank. They're banks that you've never heard of. And when they fell, you better bet that the guys who had too much money in it, uninsured deposits in it, they lose. Now, they don't go to zero. What would happen is that the FDIC would take the bank over, sell the bank's assets, and take whatever's left over and distribute it to the uninsured depositors. So that's how it normally works. 
Now, Silicon Valley Bank was not like most banks. So most banks, a lot of regular people bank with them. So a lot of their deposits are uninsured. Right. Silicon Valley Bank was very unique in that almost all its deposits were uninsured. So that very clearly shows it was a bank for basically uh, millionaires, billionaires, big corporations, and so forth. And so when Silicon Valley Bank went bust, the regular person actually almost had no exposure to it. It was really about the more connected and uh, wealthy people who, who are actually going to lose a sizable amount of money if it actually went under and they didn't get a bailout. So when the government took over um, Silicon Valley Bank, they bent the rules. So instead of having the standard procedure, you know, everyone that's insured, you get paid. Everyone that's uninsured, you know, will sell the assets and you probably will get 80 cents on the dollar by my estimate. They, they bent the rules and they basically uh, gave everyone their money back. So what that means is now uh, they're basically all deposits in the U.S. are insured or that that's a precedent. Or it could simply be that if you are important or connected enough and you make a lot of noise in Washington, Twitter, you get a bailout. So that bending the rules, I think, is a really bad precedent for, for a couple of ways. One, it shows that the system is, is really unfair. Small banks across America fail all the time. Their big depositors don't get bailouts because you don't hear about them in Twitter. You don't read about them in the news. But in this case, they had a lot of influential people who were banking with Silicon Valley Bank. It's bad for another reason as well, because it puts the government or the public on the hook for basically the uh, deposits of the entire country. Um, deposit insurance works like any other insurance company. So banks pay a fee into the uh, insurance fund and the insurance fund, if a bank goes bust, pays out. But it's not calibrated to take uh, to bail out all the deposits in the U.S. So in a sense, it's like you paid for a million dollars uh, insurance policy and you're getting like a, a $10 million uh, policy in practice. So that, that cost, that's going to be borne by the public. Um, they, they say that they're going to adjust the insurance premiums to reflect that, but I, I don't know because what's, what's happening they, now is... But even if they the do, the, where's the bank getting the money? That was a point I made on a whiteboard video. Yeah, from, from, us. <laughs> from us. Exactly. From us. Exactly. exactly. So how right. about not the taxpayer? It's not like J it's not like Jamie Dimon is going to be writing a check to the FDIC out of out of his back pocket or JP Morgan's. They're just going to nickel and dime you to a greater extent than so, they already do. And that's how they're going to pay the additional insurance. Basically, we paid for the millionaires and billionaires who banked at Silicon Valley Bank, right? Exactly. We're we're all gonna to have to pay a little bit more, and that money is gonna go and make all those people who are who really don't need anyone to protect them um to me goes into their wallet basically so that's yeah and it's gonna make them even more stupid in the future because let's go back because i hear this you know there's been some twitter spaces where the guys are going like eight hours a day talking right. about this and there's some very sophisticated quote-unquote experts that are in there talking about well the depositors should absolutely be made whole because this had nothing to do with them and, and this collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, it wasn't their fault. And for they deserve to have a bailout because these are leading edge tech companies that are, quote unquote, changing the world. I always include with their dog walking app. Right. I know. And right. But, but the you know, they're doing there, so much to save the climate. Right. How are we going to save the climate if we don't give all these people their money? Right. <laughs> yeah. But but you made that point initially, Joseph. And I want to highlight this, that any competent treasure or whatever you want to call them at XYZ tech company 
should have just said, wait, we've got over 250,000 in here. Let's go ahead and buy T-bills for heaven's sakes. Or this is, you know, we've got some exposure to risk. Let's go ahead and mitigate this risk. That that That's basic like startup 101. So my point is if we're going to go ahead and bail them out, then we send a message to say, hey, you guys that were acted like idiots in the future, go ahead and keep that up. You know, I was listening to a Twitter space, uh, Joseph, and this guy gets on there. He's talking about Signature Bank, and he had $15 million, he himself, in Signature Bank, just in one account, just checking account. And he's like, they were the best bank in the whole wide world. And the people were like, well, how do you come to that conclusion? Did you look at their balance sheet? Of course not. Of course not. I've been with JP Morgan. I've been with Goldman Sachs. I've been with Bank of America. And Signature Bank had the best customer service I have ever seen. And I'm like, that's how how you're coming to the conclusion that they were a well-run bank? How about their balance sheet, for heaven's sakes? So my point is this person that was sophisticated enough to have $15 million in the bank was treating the bank like it was a vault and not treating the bank like, hey, I'm actually lending my money to this entity and I might not get paid back. And I think that's the problem is that people, because we've been bailing out these banks and depositors and FDIC, people see a bank as a vault. And that is completely inaccurate. We have to go back to people seeing a bank as though it's an entity that you are lending your money to And they're going to do whatever it is they want to with your money. And you may or may not get paid back. So just like any other entity that you'd lend money to, you got to do your due diligence to make sure there's a very high probability that they keep their word and they give you your money back. And not to go off on a rant there, but it really gets me going. You know, this is the this is a huge problem because if you don't so we want to reward the banks that behave well, that manage their risk properly, that manage assets and their liabilities properly. But if you just blank give a blanket bailout to everyone who basically lent to a failed bank, you don't that have that type of discipline. You have tremendous what they call moral hazard, and that encourages bad behavior. So Silicon Valley Bank, let's be honest, they were basically uh they're, they're not well managed, right? So you, for them to go bust, it's totally normal. And if their depositors took losses, then from then on, depositors would be more careful. They would be more demanding of how their bank behaved and we would have a safer banking system. But now we just take away that mechanism away. You know, um, it's, it's a, so these are things that you don't really see immediately what the costs are, but over time they can be very large. You know, you're you're basically taking away any incentive to behave well. Yeah, and it goes back to Hazlitt, right? Where people get too fixated on the scene and they forget about the unseen. So what the unseen is, is the moral hazard that we're talking about. And okay. we can never go back in time and do the counterfactual where we see how much more efficient the banking system and the economy would be without these bailouts. The only thing that the people can do is wave their flag and say, oh, look at how well these bailouts worked because the banks and the depositors didn't go bust. It's no. just, it's okay. So that that's the deposit side of the equation. Can you go ahead and explain the Fed and Treasury side of the equation? Yeah, because that, that you was guys just so disappointing. Yeah. That was just go so ahead. disappointing to see that bailout facility um, because it, it's just so wrong. So 
if you're a central banker, any basic central banker, you know, in your heart that a central bank is a lender of last resort, right? So the dictum is you want to lend to banks that are solvent and you want to lend to banks that with good collateral and you want to lend at, you know, punitive rates. The whole purpose of this is to be a bank backstop to, the, to a bank. So if a bank, you know, gets into a, you know, gets into a tight situation, you can provide them a lifeline, avoid panics. And then when the panic subsides, we go back to normal. We don't want the bank to become reliant upon these lifelines because then we incentivize them to behave irresponsibly. That's the basic central tenet of central banking. But what the treasury facility does is the complete opposite. Well, first, they lend to any commercial bank. It doesn't really matter if they're solvent or not. And so, you know, there, there's there's no requirement there. The second, and the second one is the one that is really unprecedented in the history of modern central banking, uh, from what I understand, is that they lend against face value rather than market value. So I'll give you an example. If I bought treasury securities at $100 and then the Fed hikes rates, the treasury security is going to decline in value to $70, for example. Now, I can take the $70 and I can borrow $100 from the facility off of it. So if I were, let's say, going to a private lender, I could take the $70 and I can only get $70 in loans. The reason is that the collateral is only worth $70, right? It doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's, it's like if you get a mortgage, uh, your loan to value, you know, you have to, your loan is smaller than your, the value of your house, right? So let's say I'll, I'll loan the value 80% is standard for, for a mortgage here. But at the Fed facility, you can take something that's worth $70 and borrow $100 against it. So in a sense, the Fed is willing to lend unsecured to a bank. And the Fed is not supposed to be doing something like that. Another way to think about this is you're basically lending against uh, insufficient collateral. And that's just goes against everything that, uh, that a prudent central banker should do. And one more and thing it, I want to add, uh, yeah. Joseph, you touched on this earlier. I think with Jack is you're lending to an insolvent entity that that's, I, I think you kind of just glazed over that, but I want people to understand that if the fed is lending at a hundred cents on the dollar to collateral, that's only worth 70 cents. Effectively, they are lending to an insolvent entity that that is what is unprecedented. So, uh, you know, and the third thing, of course, I was going to talk about was that the interest rates that that it's lending at. It's lending at a rate that is, you know, probably below market. So the reason I say this is because, first of all, the rates are low. But if you're a bank in trouble and you go to the market, uh, you know, those interest rates that people are going to lend to you at are going to be really high. And so at the Fed facility, you're getting market or below market rates. And that's that that's not right either. So at the end of the day, what the Fed is doing is they're bailing out the entire banking system, which that was, you know, that's not supposed to happen. In 2008, we had this huge banking crisis where Lehman Brothers went down and other banks went down as well. And the authorities saw this and said that this is really bad. We don't want banks to be poorly run, we want them to be safe, and we definitely don't want them to be too big to fail. So what they did is that they rolled out all these regulations to make the banking sector safer. And the Fed stepped in and just pumped the banking sector full of liquidity. So before the great financial crisis, banks had about $50 billion in cash on deposit at the Fed. Today, they have $3 trillion. And that's a policy choice of the Fed to just fill the banks with so much cash that they can never, the system can never break. So the system actually today, compared to it as 10 years ago, 
is a lot stronger. Now, if you remember back in 2020, March 2020, all the markets went haywire. Uh, a lot of mutual funds and so forth had problems. Money funds had problems. But the banking sector, totally fine. In fact, actively made a lot of loans. So that was a really, really strong test for the banking sector. And it showed that you know, the banks were stronger. And they are stronger. So there was really no need for this facility. And the last thing I'll note is that Silicon Valley Bank is really not an important bank. So it has about $200 billion in assets. Sounds like a lot, except that, you know, it's not even 10% of JP Morgan. So Silicon Valley Bank is really just a, a big local bank. It's not systemically important. It's not connected to the global financial system. It's just a bank that really had a lot of uh, clients that were rich people and corporations. There was really no need to, 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 uh, to bail them out, but they didn't just bail them out. They took out the big guns and they bailed out all the banks. Yeah. And that brings us to even more moral hazard. When I was thinking, I'd love your take on this because maybe I'm wrong, but I was thinking about, okay, well, what would I do if I'm a bank and I have no ethical standards and I'm just going to put the pedal to the metal now knowing that they have this new facility. I had it written up on my whiteboard, the, the, the banking term funding program or something. It, it seems to me like this is basically a free call option for yeah. the banks where they can go out there and they can buy an asset for a hundred cents. And if it goes down to 70 cents, well, then they can just go ahead and break even. And if it goes up to 120 cents, then they make a profit. So it's like heads, I win tails. I break even. So why would, why would I not want to just expand my balance sheet just infinitely knowing that I've got this basically free call option? Am I seeing that correctly? I think, I think so a bank has to supposedly has to manage interest rate risk, right? George? So if you buy something at a hundred dollars and then it moves against you because of interest rates, then you could have some serious mark to market losses. And what that, what this facility does is that it makes those mark to market losses basically you know, irrelevant because you can always borrow against the face value rather than the market value. So it takes away the incentive for a bank to um, to hedge interest rate risk. Actually, it takes away interest rate risk uh, for the for, <laughs> yeah. for the banking sector. So those losses are, are basically socialized now. So that's strange. You know, a bank is what's what's one of the things a bank does manage interest rate risk, right? You know, lend short, uh, sorry, borrow short, lend long. And now the Fed is, uh, you know, just kind of going to gobble up that risk for them so they don't they don't they have even less risk and sure that's fine but one was this done through the legislator is there some kind of uh, you know at least some kind of democratic process to before you make this huge fundamental regulatory decision that affects the entire banking sector right now i mean we have all these bank regs but maybe we don't even need bank regs maybe we'll just have the fed bail out all the banks right we don't even need regs so they kind of rewrote the regulation book for, for the banking sector. And yeah, that, that, that's definitely something that, that I don't, I, I'm not sure that that makes any yeah. sense for them to do that.
I'm trying to put myself in, in the bankster's shoes here. So if I've got a deposit, that's, that's a liability, let's say 100 bucks. And then let's say the offsetting asset is a, a bank reserve, 100 bucks. Okay. Well, I've got the option to do something with that bank reserve. So I can go ahead and create a loan, I can, which where I'm lending money into the real economy, hopefully to create goods and services. Or I can take that bank reserve and I can trade that for a treasury, for a mortgage-backed security, et cetera. So if I'm that bank and I'm saying, okay, what do I want to do with this bank reserve? And I know that I have zero risk, zero buying a mortgage-backed security or a treasury or any type of garbage that the Fed will take, or I've got a lot of risk by creating a loan with that bank reserve to create more goods and services, what are they going to do? They're going to lend less into the real economy and they're going to buy more of whatever the Fed will take, which most likely isn't going to be a loan to XYZ shoemaker to make more shoes. So do you see that being a, a part of that moral hazard? I think it does make treasury securities and longer duration uh, assets more attractive, right? So at the end of the day, you're subsidizing the banking sector to take on more interest rate risk because uh, now they don't have any interest rate risk. So with, with know, those specific assets though. Right, with those, so right. Agency MBS, treasuries, agency debentures. So basically government liabilities. In, in a sense, it could be a very clever way of creating more demand for, for treasury securities. Now, I don't know yeah. if that's how they think about this, but you know, if you are issuing tons of debt every year and you're worried that maybe one of your, let's say, a big country in Asia doesn't want to buy as many or other people don't want to buy as many and you need people to buy it, common thing to do, have your banks buy it. And how do you encourage banks to buy it? Well, you know, sweeten the deal, right? Hey, I'm going to take away your interest rate risk. Just buy it, hold it, you'll be fine. Mm, so that's, I don't that's know. a good so point. I, I don't know. So my experience with the with the regulator sector is that they they're, they don't play this 3D chess, right? They, they're just kind of reactive. You know, they see something and they panic and they do something. So I, I don't know if there's any grand design like this. But, you know, it seems like the, it has a good side effect of making treasury securities even more attractive. Yeah, and I think it is an unintended consequence that eventually they will notice. Yeah. And then once they do notice the central planners, then they'll be like, hey, let, let's let's leverage this even more. Yeah, yeah. So um, one, one other thing that I, I, I'll note is that so the way that Silicon Valley Bank was managed was, you know, it was just a lot worse than other banks. So if you're worried about contagion <laughs> in the banking sector, I, I wouldn't really worry about that. Silicon Valley Bank was just exceptionally poorly managed. Um, the way that you can see that is just how they manage their deposits. So uh, if you're a bank, what you're scared of the most is a run, everyone coming in asking for their money back at the same time. And you have a lot of ways to manage that so that doesn't happen. One easy way is that you can issue CDs. So a CD, you lock your money with the bank for three months, six months, a year. The bank doesn't have to worry about runs. But a more common way and something a bank of Silicon Valley bank size would do is to have a diversified depositor base. So you get a lot of mom and pop retail deposits. Those are the best because those are under the $250,000 FDIC insurance. That means that no matter what happens with the bank, those guys don't run. So if you have a diversified investor base, a deposit base, 
by the way, if you're a depositor, you're an investor in the bank. It may not seem like that, but, but you are. If you have a diversified deposit base, you don't worry about runs, but Silicon Valley all in on the, uh, basically the more volatile deposits like corporations and rich people. And you know, those guys, they have a lot of money in the bank and they don't have insurance. So the first thing that they hear something bad, they run. So they, they went all in on having, um, just a very volatile deposit base and they're in their peer group. No other bank is like that. They just really, uh, very poorly manage their liabilities. It's totally on them. Yeah. And they absolutely should go bust a lot and they're depositors should take a, a haircut. You know, I think I heard you guys talking about the funding for the new facility coming from the treasury and more specifically from the U.S.'s FX reserves. Which yeah, I think you, right now stand right. around 60 billion, 60 with a B. Did I get that uh, right? So uh, I haven't checked the numbers. I think it's less than 60. Um, you can think of it as the United States' sovereign wealth fund. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of funny, but it, it's actually so if not you're like funny. Saying, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Yeah, but if you have a pretty printer, you don't, you don't need sovereign wealth funds, right? So that, that makes sense as well. Um, so back, back in the day, there was a problem and the dollar was too strong and it was um, causing havoc throughout the world. And what the authorities did is that they began to sell dollars and buy foreign currency to try to weaken the dollar. And the legacy of that is what's called the ESF. It's called the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And it's this pot of money that the treasury has full discretion to control. It's like their slush fund. So they don't really need authorization from Congress or whatever to use it. And so that's a handy thing because sometimes you have situations like what we have now. They can just take money out of the ESF and, and put it into fund facilities like this. But uh, couldn't they use that to prop up the, if the dollar? If they, and I mean, obviously it seems like that will never uh, ever happen. But if they did run into an emergency situation, they'd use those FX reserves. Yeah, you can try sell to... the FX reserves and buy dollars. Honestly, I, I think it's actually a few billion. It's not really going to get you anywhere. I, I think that's a, that would not be a good way to to use their their dollars. The, yeah, the better way would be to just ask the Fed to do it for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I in the whiteboard video, I I kind of tried to put that into context, and I think you guys talked about in comparison how much China has in their FX yeah. reserve account. And it's three trillion. But what it's, I did is I looked. Yeah, yeah. But I, I I looked at what other countries have around sixty, and and the one country was Algeria, and then the other country that's because now you could say we're down to thirty five, assuming that twenty five went into the new facility, and yeah. that puts us right on par with Uzbekistan. Hmm. <laughs> so so let yeah. that sink in for a moment, you know. Now Joseph. Here, maybe I'm putting on the old tinfoil hat too too quickly here, but when I see them bail out depositors and expand basically FDIC up to infinity, I think, okay, well, in the next crisis, why won't the central planners start talking about, you know, why or why would they not ask the question, should we even have commercial deposits on the balance sheets of commercial banks? or retail depositors. Why on earth are we taking all this risk when we don't have to? Why do we even have the FDIC? All they are is a middleman. It doesn't even make sense. Why would we not take these depositors 
accounts and just put them on the balance sheet of the Fed because that bank cannot go bust. So that's the ultimate insurance policy and we'll never, ever, ever have to worry about bank failures again. And those stupid Milton Friedman types should love this because if we just take all the retail deposits and put them on the Fed's balance sheet, then we actually can let the big banks fail and we can let the free market work. And you know that's basically a central bank digital currency. So do, do you think I'm being a little too Alex Jones there? <laughs> or what do you think? You know, I, I would think that would be, except that I know I know there are people in administration who want that. So I yeah. know there are people in the administration who want to get rid of the banks and have everyone just have a CBDC at the Fed because the administration nominated so, uh, Amarova from, uh, uh, right. you know, uh, is his name Saul, Saul Amarova, uh, the professor? Something like that. Yeah, something, something like that. that. They nominated her to be um, the head of the office of the controller of the currency, which is one of the top banking regulators in the U.S. So her, she is just an academic, but she writes about um, banking. And one of her most noteworthy works is a dream where she would say, we just have one bank. We just have uh, basically the Fed. Everyone has deposits at the Fed, so a CBDC. And the Fed, well, the Fed will allocate credit because after all, uh, the people in the government, so wise like herself, are going to be able to allocate credit the best way for the good of society, basically. Right, so right. in a sense, it's a command and control economy. It's uh, essentially the model of the Soviet Union or uh, before or um, Red China back in the day. So. They basically want a communist system. And one way to do that is to take over the banking system. And this is potentially a slow move towards that direction. Because like, like you mentioned, George, well, if everything is unlimited insurance and maybe CBDCs are waiting in the wings, maybe we just all bank with the Fed. Yeah, I think it's an easy pitch for the politicians. I mean, why not? I think the average Joe would look at that you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why on earth are we dealing with these banks with all this risk? And we could just all deal with a bank with absolutely no risk. And then we what could they just don't go understand. Back and yeah. Yeah. What they don't understand, of course, is banks create deposits, banks create money. If we all bank with the government, well, that means that the government has to make loans. And of course, mm -hmm. the government is eager to make loans, right? They can make loans to fund the projects that they think are better or to fund the projects that belong to their friends. And that's yeah. not the kind of world we want to be in. The more yeah. centralized we have a banking sector, the more power consolidated into the central government, the more potential there is for tremendous corruption. And that's what we see throughout history. When we give a whole bunch of people a lot of power, then they tend, as people do, to use that to benefit themselves. And there's tremendous corruption in, in Russia, tremendous corruption in, in other authoritarian countries. And as if we were to become more like that, then, you know, I, I think that we would also become more corrupt. And, you know, I, honestly, as a country, I already see a lot of concerning things. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the CPI today? And <laughs> yeah. then looks like it's what, hotter than expected. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go to that next. And then I, I'll, I really want to get your take on the two year treasury as well. Yeah. So listen, the market before Silicon Valley Bank was thinking that the Fed is going to hike higher for longer. We had strong jobs, strong spending, strong CPI last month. And so we were all on track to go, let's say, take the Fed funds rate to uh, 
close to 6% hold it for a while. Yeah, neutral rates, sky high. Sure. And then we had Silicon Valley Bank happen. And then the market was like, oh my God, the world is falling apart. Fed's got to cut rates to save the world. We're going back to, uh, we're going back to zero. And I think that's completely wrong. That's completely wrong because Silicon Valley Bank is, is not a big deal. It's just a big local bank. We hear about it in the news, but you know, I, I don't really think it has a big impact on the overall economy. So I think that's a, a little bit of an overreaction. And then we come to today, we got CPI reminding us again that inflation is still pretty persistent. Now, this is a huge problem because if the market thinks that the Fed is going to cut rates and we see, let's say, the 10-year go down and so forth, you know, that means that if, if let's say you were buying a house, your mortgage rate was 7%. Now, maybe it's going to go back to a 5%. So in effect, it's easing monetary policy. It's stimulating the economy, even if the actual real economy isn't really affected by all this, uh, you know, regional bank failures and the actual economy is still is still humming along. I mean, one of the ways we can think about this is uh, inflation in part is because there is a very strong uh, wage gains, strong labor market. Does what happened in Silicon Valley really affect, let's say, a construction company in Ohio or in Texas or, you know, stuff like that or manufacturing and so forth? I don't think it does. This is a problem because if the economy is okay and the market has lowered interest rates for everyone, then you have the real possibility that inflation will reaccelerate again and stay high. And so for the Fed, it's a, it's a dilemma. Um, my base case is that they do 25 basis points next week. It was going to be 50, but if you have this, all this excitement, I think it's hard for them to, to stay at 50. Right. And you see the markets responding as though the Fed is going to cut rates a lot sooner than they thought, you know, going back to the neutral rate last week being, you know, projected at whatever, 6% or something right. like that, because you right. see Bitcoin as an example, like what, 25, 26,000, you see the NASDAQ stock, you know, the growth stocks going up, you see the dollar going down, pretty much everything you would expect by the market predicting that there's going to be a pivot sooner than later. But you're saying you think the market may be offsides here. And they might not see that pivot as quickly as they think. And that could lead to some downside in some of these assets that we've seen skyrocket over the last few days. Uh, well, some of them are kind of oversold, especially things like, I think, energy in, in my personal view. Now, okay, I'll, I'll look at it this way. So you have the financial economy, but stock market and so forth, bond market, and you have the real economy. And these two economies are connected, but they're not the same thing. You can have a very strong uh, financial economy and so-so real economy, as we've seen in the past 10 years. But I think you can also have a decent real economy and a financial economy that, that's not doing as well. With that said, when you're raising interest rates, you're having a huge effect on the financial economy, but you're having a little bit effect on the real economy. So if mm -hmm. you raise interest rates, boom, you, you see the bond market react, you see the stock market react, you see currencies react. But how does that actually affect the real economy? It affects some sectors like real estate pretty quickly. Um, but let's say that you are an average Joe, you're working on a job, your mortgage rate is locked in at 3% for 30 years, right? It doesn't yeah. affect you that much. And if you're a corporation, you borrowed for five years, probably at 2 or 3% during COVID, you're fine too. So when you raise interest rates, it has a very uneven impact on the world. And that's a problem because what the Fed really cares about is slowing the real economy. And if the real economy is less sensitive, 
as the higher you go, the big it's going to have a big impact on the financial economy, but not that much in the real economy. So how do you how do you manage the financial economy to not implode so that you can get the real economy to slow down enough to to get inflation down? Now, this was actually a big problem, not just for the Fed, but for all central banks. We had a real live uh, experiment happen in the UK on this topic last year. So the UK was doing its monetary policy stuff. The guilt market completely broke, right? So guilt yields skyrocketed. What did they do? They came in and they did a targeted uh, mini QE. Right. And then they went back to hiking rates. So they basically duct taped the financial economy so that they can continue to hike rates for the real economy. The Fed is going to doing actually is already doing the exact same thing. So now they have this bank bailout facility so that as they hike rates, the banks, which are part of the financial economy as well, they, they don't implode. If they have huge losses on their bond portfolio, they won't go bust because they can always borrow from the bailout facility. So they duct tape that part together. And if that part is a-okay, then you can keep raising rates, right? Because you won't have right. disaster in the financial sector. So what the bank, what the Fed is doing today is, in my view, just like what the Bank of England is doing. They are prepping the way to be able to hike rates without destroying the financial markets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a that's a very good argument, I think, for the Fed maybe not pivoting as soon as the, the, the market is now predicting. Oh, man, well, it, it, listen, at, at, at current yields, mortgages are going to see a five handle soon. We're going to see reacceleration in housing just like we did in January. So, you know, they're, I think they are in a tough position. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like they're in a very tough position from a standpoint of it's almost like the more they raise rates, the more the 10 year goes, the more they raise the front of the, the curve, the more the 10 year goes down, which means the more mortgage rates go down which means more, most likely, uh, more equity, maybe more purchasing power and aggregate total because the average American's balance sheet is so tied up in their home equity. And it's like this damned if you do, damned if you don't type situation for the Fed. Yeah, it almost forces them to over tighten, right? Because yeah. otherwise, it's it, they're not going to get the effect that they want. And so for, I think they're in a difficult position. How many, I guess... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like a funny question, but it's like how many how many facilities do you think we'll have by the end of this rate hiking cycle? Because you know, I was making a joke yesterday, or uh, Snyder was actually making a joke that every single week Jerome Powell comes out and tells us that he's got all the tools to handle it. Whatever the problem is, he's got the tools. And I actually went back on YouTube and I heard him. He, you know, Jerome Powell has been saying that since uh on youtube i saw september of 2019 where he was addressing the repo spike and he comes out and says oh don't worry we've got the tools to handle this <laughs> and then the next thing you know he's creating more tools and then during <laughs> covid he comes out you know right at the beginning he says oh no don't worry don't worry we've got the tools for this and then the next thing you know two weeks later they've got another 25 facilities that we don't even know about it's like every single time he says we've got plenty of tools the next day he has to drive over to home depot and, and get some more tools <laughs> so this is just the, the the most recent uh buying spree from home depot what we saw yesterday I, I, you know and i'm kind of joking here but do you think we're gonna get more tools uh more duct tape 
before this rate hiking cycle is over? So in COVID, they, they actually rolled out out of uh, out of the garage tools that they used during the great financial crises. So those tools <laughs> yeah. that, that they created, they don't go away. They, they're in the garage. You can just pull them right back out. Uh, so oh, that's actually, that, that's that's the beauty of it. Actually, it's super easy to use. So, but Monday's up, tool was brand new, though. That was brand new. That was a uh, ah, that, that that was brand new, and I think it was yeah, it, it was actually very powerful and, like I mentioned, unnecessary. But if you're talking about the financial markets, or really what you're talking about is numbers on the screen, and when you have a money printer, there is, I mean, you you can't print oil, but if it's a number on the screen. You can you can take care of it if you have a printer. There you go. I I think that we actually have wide swaths of the market covered. The only thing that's not covered that's pretty obvious to me is the equity market. Now, I think I think a few years ago, no one would ever think the Fed would be involved in the equity market, and I still don't think they will be. And I don't think so. It's buying shares. Yeah. So that's the only tool I think they don't really have clearly covered. So just for some context in. In Japan, for example, the Bank of Japan, huge, huge buyer of Japanese stocks. I think at one point they own, I think, seven percent of the entire Japanese stock market. So it's a, it's a, it's a tool that central banks have used before. Or alternatively, the Swiss National Bank is also an active purchaser of shares, not for monetary oh, yeah. policy, but just to manage their sovereign wealth fund or their reserves, their foreign reserves. So. Um, it's, it's something that central banks can do. I, I don't see any reason why the Fed would have to. But if something got really, really out of hand, that's one thing that could also be possible. So listen, never underestimate the creativity of, of this stuff, right? We have so many more facilities <laughs> than, than we've ever dreamed of. I, I promise you, if you ask anyone 20 years ago, ask Alan Greenspan, he would have never dreamed that the Fed would be this involved with the markets. Mm. But it is. And I, I don't see any clear limit. So I think that's how the world would work from now on. Yeah, my concern is we look back in two years, not 20 years, and we say the exact same thing about right now that, oh my gosh, two years ago, we never could have dreamed that the Fed would be this integrated into the economy. And, and here we are. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. Joseph, I know that you've done a couple really awesome YouTube videos on this topic. You've done a blog post on it. So can you tell the viewers where to check out your blog post or to check out the the brand new YouTube channel? You guys all have to subscribe to this. <laughs> and then any other content that you're putting out right now? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, thanks so much for watching, guys. It's been actually a really exciting few days for me. If you're interested, oh, and by the way, you were on Fox Business yesterday. I was on Fox Business. Yeah, that's my first time on TV. It was kind of cool. Um, okay, so uh, only briefly though. Um, so if you're interested in hearing more about my work and learning about the banking sector, you can find my work at FedGuy.com. If you're interested in learning about central banking, I have a best-selling book on Amazon called Central Banking 101. And if you're interested in learning about the markets, I have an online course that teaches you about markets from the perspective of a macro trader. It's also on my website, fedguide.com. So yeah, definitely check it out if you're interested. Okay. Yeah. I can't recommend it enough. Joseph, thank you for your time, my friend. And I, I can't wait to do it again. See you next time, George.